Morning, church. I love you all very much. It's a joy to be on this journey with you, to get to gather like we do and dig into God's holy word. Grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. We're in a very special place in the Holy Scriptures. In week 70 of our sermon series through John's Gospel, those of you who have been a part of our church for a long time know that week 70 is a new and thing to us. Praise the Lord for his good word. Thankful for your positive feedback of how God's word is moving in your lives and shaping and, and molding you and challenging you. May we continue to be undone in our flesh and built up in the spirit, the word of truth. We're in the most precious part of the Gospel of John, some would argue. Chapter 17 is devoted to one of the most special testimonies in Scripture as it gives us insight into Jesus, God the Son, and his prayer to God the Father. Many times of prayer that Jesus had are recorded in the New Testament, but the, the length of the prayer, the depth of the prayer, and the words of the prayer are, are really not matched with anything like what we see in John 17. In the first five verses, we saw Jesus honor God the Father as he lifted his head to the heavens, and then he addressed him as Father. He states that his hour has come, the hour that the covenant of redemption made by the triune Godhead in eternity past had pointed to. I quoted A.W. Pink last week. I'll quote him again this morning. It was the hour when events took place which the history of the entire universe can supply no parallel. The hour when the serpent was permitted to bruise the, he the heel of the woman's seed as prophesied and predicted and by God to Satan in Genesis 13, Genesis 3.15. When the sword of divine justice smote Jehovah's fellow, the sword that divided mankind from the Garden of Eden, from the Tree of Life, as put there in the Genesis account. When the sun refused to shine, as testified in the Gospels, when Jesus hung on the cross. When the earth rocked on its axis, when the elect company were redeemed, when heaven was gladdened and which brought and shall bring to all eternity glory to God in the highest. Amen? The hour has come, Jesus says. Glory to God is the ultimate aim of this hour, not us, not our salvation, but the glory of God. Jesus has been given authority over all flesh and he alone can give eternal life to whom the Father has given him. He clarified that eternal life is truly knowing God, having a restored and real personal relationship with God through Jesus, the power of the Spirit, and trusting in Jesus alone. Also in verses 1 through 5, we see Jesus testify that his work is done and time has come to be glorified with the glory that he had in eternity past, as he too is eternal. Church, this is God the Son talking to God the Father in prayer, 
This is the Holy Godhead talking about the plan of redemption and his eternal glory and our privileged knowing him and glorifying him. So now we turn to verse 6 through 10. In this section of the Lord's Prayer, he's focused on his devoted disciples, his followers, who have heard his testimony, seen his miracles, who have believed in him truly, not momentarily, not for selfish gain, but for the glory of God. In it, we hear his heart for his people, and we understand better who his people are. So it's a great blessing to us today. Praise God that he is even chosen to have a people. We should be constantly astonished at this, boggled at the fact that a holy and perfect God would choose to save any wicked, fallen, selfish people. We should be boggled that he doesn't righteously judge every one of us in his perfect justice and wrath because of our sin. Praise God that not all of mankind is condemned, but many are redeemed. Amen? This is the grace of God. It's his grace. It is the greatest gift you can ever be given. To be adopted in the family of God, it is also a great work of God. It is a gift that cost us nothing, but cost Jesus everything. It's a gift and an adoption that comes with the highest price ever paid. A bloody price. The weight of wrath. Past, present, future sin for all of God's people. Oh, how sweet it is to be loved by Jesus. May we leave here today overflowing with gratitude to God for the fact that we are his people. His redeemed, his blood-bought, secure, and eternal people. May those who entered in here today, an enemy of God, because you have yet to truly die to yourself and trust your life to Jesus and everything within it, may you leave here not an enemy of God because of your sin, but an adopted son or daughter of God because of Jesus' victory in your life and your faith in him. Because of new birth and saving faith in Jesus alone. With that, let's turn to the words of Jesus Picking up in verse 6, John 17. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. I want to first see that God has a particular people that are his and that are given to Jesus to redeem and to bring home. What we've seen throughout the scriptures that God in his sovereignty, in his freedom as God, chooses. And he has every right to choose whomever he wants. So we see him choose different people groups over others along the way. We see him take the lowly and use them in mighty ways.
I want us to first see that God has a particular people that he's given to Jesus to redeem and bring home. Jesus says, a people who you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me. First, can we rightly acknowledge that all things belong to God? Deuteronomy 10.14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens. That's a lot of unforeseen territory. The earth with all that is in it belong to God. Romans 11.36, that all things are from him and through him and to him. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Psalm 89.11, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it. You have founded them. But Jesus refers to a particular people here that are not all people. But those, the scriptures tell us, God has chosen from before time. One of the clearest places we read this is in Ephesians chapter 1, 4 through 6. Even as he chose us, speaking to the church, speaking to the redeemed, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, we were chosen. That we should be a holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us, the beloved. Jesus was also clear to his followers in John chapter 15, verse 16. We read him testify, You did not choose me, but I chose you. I've heard many Christians say over the years, speaking of their view of choosing God as if the real glory maybe belongs to them. And I quote, isn't it great that I finally got my act together and chose God instead of the sin that was always so tempting me? Finally put that away, chose the right thing. We must see we did not choose him as we have seen in the scriptures time and time again, we could not choose him. Even if we wanted to, but because of our slavery to sin, the scriptures are clear, we could not. And oh yeah, because of our sin, we also didn't want to either. To remind our hearts of this, look again with me at John chapter 1, all the way back to the beginning, verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, new birth, from spiritual death to spiritual life, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
Let's break that down real quick. Not of blood. In other words, our, your family lineage didn't determine who would be born again unto eternal salvation. Paul will say this again in Romans 9. Nor of the will of the flesh, it says, the desire of our flesh is for ourselves in our sin, not of God. We need new birth to have desires for God. Romans 8, 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Nor of the will of man. Our will is bound. It's enslaved. And therefore not free to choose to be born again unto salvation. This is our reality in sin. So we're desperate for God alone to give new birth. Like I've said many times, you did not aid or assist in your own physical birth. You, you were... If anything, only but in the way. Hey, Mom, let me help you out. No. There was an act upon you. Same thing for our spiritual birth. We had to be reborn. We had to be revived. No one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good, not even one. Romans 3, 11 through 12. Genesis 6, 5. Every intention of the thoughts of mankind's heart was only evil continually. But instead it says in John 1, verse 13, that we are born but of God. Only God is truly free and authoritative to determine who is born again. And praise God, he chooses to free any of us. Amen? Church, we must never lose sight of the wonderful revelation that it is to, for, that God chose us for himself. A people that was nothing but against him, when we wanted nothing to do with him, he chose us, he came to save us, What a wondrous reality it is to be chosen by God. Beloved, let the truth of your election by the Almighty Creator and, and Sustainer of all things be an overarching truth that trumps other realities that you might face or other perceptions you might face. Anything that wants to attack your identity, your purpose for life, You've had many people stand before you, people that claim to love you, people that claim to be for you and say atrocious things to you, lies to manipulate you, to put you down for self-serving purposes. You don't listen to those things to shape your identity when you know Jesus, when you are part of his chosen people, you listen to God. You let God's election in your life rewrite the way this processes who you are. Maybe counseling is helpful. I'm a big fan of that. You know me, you know that I'm 
I believe in good counseling. But you know where it starts? It starts with you understand rightly who you are in God. And let it rewrite what you believe about yourself. Combat it with the reality that God, the Sovereign, the Holy One, has chosen to make you His. Let these words of Christ wash over you every day. Experience His love. See His choosing you. Know that He doesn't choose you or love you because He has to, because something put Him in a position where He's obligated, a position He didn't want to be in, there's no system by which he's held or bound. Yeah, there's churches out there that teach such things. Make God small and man big. I say there's a much more joyful gospel in the reality of the teachings of Scripture. These truths before us. That he chose you. He put his love on you. Not because he had to. But simply because he wanted to. Not because you were better than the next person. More beautiful, more skilled, had more potential. But simply because God chose to save you. Now let's look at the specific emphasis of Jesus' declaration here for his people. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. This is the fulfilling of a prophecy in Psalm 22, 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. To make known the Father's name was to reveal him, to manifest his character, display his perfections. And as we're told from the beginning of the Gospel of John, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Who is at the Father's side? He has made him known. The Son has made the Father known like no one else before. This is one of the most primary tasks of Christ to make God known in a way that only Jesus can. Chapter 14, John 14, verse 7. If you had known me, he said you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is saying very clearly that to know him is to know the Father. He's saying to his disciples, you know me and so you know the Father again and again. Church, you must not miss the weight of this truth. Jesus is the way to God. He is God. To truly know Jesus is to be reconciled to the Father and be given the Holy Spirit. Our God is Trinitarian. That means our salvation is Trinitarian. This is the God we know and fellowship with as a result of knowing Christ. Like he has done all throughout the gospel, Jesus is making his deity known, the reality of the Trinity known, that he and God the Father are one. He's saying, I am Son of God, equal member of the triune Godhead, I am God. If you know me, you know God. So perfectly did Christ discharge this task 
that he could say, John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Later, John will write in his first letter, 1 John 2, 13, buried in the back of your Bible, writing to the redeemed ones, he says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Peter will also speak of we who are God's chosen ones. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you'll recognize this verse. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are his people. A people of his own possession. Church, this is the greatest privilege in this life. Why is it such a great privilege? Because we get to proclaim now, because we know him, the excellencies of him who called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Amen? That's a privilege to do that. This brings me to a point of application that we need to not miss here in verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people you've given me out of the world. Church, we too are called to in the commission to make much of the name of God so that those that God has chosen to save out of the world, a worldwide people, by His grace, are given saving faith in Jesus alone for salvation. Look at the, the next part of verse 6. John 17, 6. Jesus says next that they, the people God's given him, he's manifested his name to, he says, they have kept your word. Jesus says to the Father that those who have trusted in him have kept God's word. In, in other words, they joyfully obey God and his commands. This is a marker of the truly devoted of God and those who truly love God. Jesus emphasized this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's the overflow of a true love for him. It's super simple and yet often ignored foundation of the Christian faith. But the byproduct of true love for God is devotion to him. You'll get different teachings and churches out there who will want to make light of obedience. We'll wrongly read the scriptures and, and link any kind of obedience or steadfastness in obeying the law to uh, a wrong alignment with legalism or the Judaizers. Those efforts 
or to really give a lot of power to people to choose God if they want and and then just make a wrong emphasis of grace and it's all grace and you just kind of do whatever you want and it sells really well. But if it's God I love and if I'm at war with my sin I love being his, and I love to proclaim his excellencies. Then I'm going to love his commands, too. I would argue it's not true love if it's not backed up with your life. It's just words. It's just religion. Jesus is speaking of God's people in a positive way to say they indeed not only say they love you, they are proving it by their obedience to the word. They're keeping the word. You cannot love Jesus and then disregard the fact that he is God. Instead, if you love him and you know him, you know that he's God. And if I get to be with God, near God, in relationship with God, walk with God, honor God, then I want to serve Him as God. Obey Him. Your fleshly reasoning will make war with that. Your unbelieving friends and family will make war with that. Because it's folly to them. Because the flesh doesn't want to submit to God. But we don't let them have authority. We let his word have authority. Amen? To love Jesus is to love his rule. It is sweet to you that he is the master and you are a slave. You are joyful to be so. Because you now, for the first time, understand what slavery in the world looked like in sin, bound unto deserving wrath and death eternally. You're free in Christ. You're alive in Christ. Percy Howard said, All sentimental talking and singing about love are vain. Unless by grace we show a truthful obedience, there is more hypocrisy than we suppose. Love is practical, or it is not love at all. First John 5, 2-3, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. First John 5, 2-3. Some of you need to really meditate on that this week. Christian, you cannot love God and despise His commands. Despises ways. 
His commands are not burdensome to a true believer because you joyfully submit. You may be really lousy at it. I'm not talking about how good you are at it. I'm talking about where your heart is. That you're not rebelling, wiser than he is, smarter than he is, more authoritative than he is. The fact that Jesus is highlighting this to the Father in this prayer tells us a lot. And it's all the more showing of how central to the life of Christian faith this is. John 17, let's look now at 7, verse 7 and 8. Now they, those that God has given him, that keeping his word, that he's manifested God's name to, they know everything that you have given me is from you. Verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them. And they have come to know in truth that I came from you. You've got to not forget Jesus is a normal-looking man. He didn't have a glow. He didn't, like, float around like Magneto. (laughs) I'm serious. Serious, think about that. I think sometimes we think about, like, Jesus is, like, really sticking out. No, he... Just looks like all the rest of these guys in the crowd. So the fact that the true believers rightly believed in who he was and who he's from and what he came to do is huge. Jesus has done his job to speak these truths. To bring the revelation of God to his people. Therefore, they know what God wants them to do and to know. They know that Jesus is from God and that he is God the Son. They've been informed. Do they understand it all yet? No. Are they perfect or mature in their application of these truths? No. In just a few hours from this prayer, they're they're watching Jesus. Pray this prayer to God the Father. In just a few hours, it's going to get real hard. They're all going to run away and go hide under their beds. And some deny even knowing Jesus. I don't even know the man. But they will overcome that fleshly fear and self-protection They will rise from the shadows. They will go on to testify and fight like never before. Why? Because they know him. They will fail. But they will overcome. We will fail. But if you are truly his, you will overcome. Why? Because we know him. Because we remember he's God. We remember he's victorious. He's overcome 
all that we face or will face. That it's not our end. That he's bigger. Jesus holds up to the Father that they know him. And they think this is bigger than we give it credit. You might read through 7 and 8 and fly right by, but beloved, slow down. You know him. You know that he's God. He's from God. He's he's been returned to God. He's making intercession for you right now. Church, you know he is faithful. You know his promises are true and he cannot lie. You know he's victorious. You know you know that you stand with him in victory. You know him. The simplest fact is that we've received the Son's testimony about the Father, that we know Him in love. We know Him as Father. We know Him according to the words of the Son, who has come in flesh to testify truth and to sacrifice in love. This is truly good news. Look at verse 8 again. For I have given them the words that you gave me, that they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. Again, A.W. Pink says it well. The word for, right here in verse 8, for I have given them the words. The word for introduces what follows, explains all the things in the previous verse. In other words, the true disciples of Jesus had had entered by grace into that which the world was completely ignorant. Namely, that the Father was the source of all that was given to the Son. Some wondered at His words and works. Others, in their enmity, their war, their blasphemy, attributed Jesus' works to Satan. So not only had the disciples learned that he came out of the Father, but they had perceived that the means, the words, of bringing them into such a blessing were also of the Father. The Savior had treated them as friends, committing them to them those intimate communications of grace, which the Father gave to him, that this, that they might know the divine relationship into which his wondrous love had brought them. Nor had this been in vain. Slow of heart, they truly were. As we are, yet they received the truth. And receiving it, they knew that he was the son of the Father's love. End quote. A sweet picture for this for us is in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This leads to the, again, the great and important emphasis of Jesus in the last part of 8. Not that they just heard, but that they believe 
is how they knew God. They believed. So, so let's, let's dig into that. That God's people believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That they have believed that you sent me. So let's go back real quick to John 6, chapter 6. 66 through 69. After this, many of his disciples, his followers at the time, turned back and no longer walked with him. That they proved to be false disciples. They were following Jesus to get what fell off the truck. More miracles, a little more status, a nice show. They weren't, they weren't in. They weren't following him to be devoted to him to the end. They weren't believing into him. Okay? Many examples of false disciples then and today in the modern church. It's not good enough for someone to say, I go to church, I attend, I serve. Back to the text. So Jesus said, many walked away. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Why did many walk away from Jesus to pursue other things? Because in their minds and hearts, unconverted, other things were going to be better for them. We're going to be more fulfilling. Things of the world, you know, food and houses and jobs and kids and vacations and whatever else. So Peter rightly, who believes into Christ, rightly says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. <laughs> yes. Do you see it? Do you see what Jesus is testifying now of before the Father? They believed. They didn't commit to Jesus didn't commit himself to people who had false faith, like those who had proved to not be true disciples and walked away. His true disciples, who he committed himself to, believed into him. And this is what he came to bring us. He came so that we could know the truth, so that they would receive the truth, that his people would understand the truth and believe. God's people believe that everything he did was according to the will of the Father. Everything he said was the word of God. They believe, God's people rightly believe that his miracles are done by the power of God. Believe that everything that he had ever taught had divine authority because it's from God. Believe that Jesus is holy, and every day that he ministered to sinners and among sinners, he never sinned. 
believed that he had regular and constant communion with God the Father, and that everything he did expressed the will of the Father. They believed that he was the divine Son of the Father, that he heard from the Father, and gave that testimony. They knew that everything he possessed was from God. His nature was from God. His words were from God. His works were from God. They received, therefore, all his words as true. They understood, therefore, his divine origin, that he came from the Father. They believed that he had been sent by the Father. They believed that he came from heaven, that he is the eternal Son of God. Repeatedly in this prayer, Jesus says, they know that you sent me. They know that you sent me. They believe that he's son of God. They believe that he's God the son. Eternal. Coexistent with God. Co-eternal with God the Father. The creator, the source of life, the glory as, if the, as in the only begotten of the Father. And just imagine for a second what it was like to stand there among Jesus as he is praying these words to God the Father. Do you realize that it was Jesus? No, no, let me say it this way. Do you realize that Jesus will testify those words for you if you are truly his at the day of judgment? Think about that. You too will stand next to him. And that testimony will be for you that you too know him and believed into him. He will say of his true disciples, I want to give you, Father, my testimony that this person knows, receives, understands, believes. Believes into me. He or she is mine. He or she is yours. Verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. The world here is a general name for mankind in their fallen state. We've seen the world or the earth used in many forms throughout the gospel. This is man who are in their fallen state, non-elect, not praying for them. Paul describes the world in this context in uh, reference to believers who were once of the world in this way. In Ephesians 2, 2, describing the world as sons of disobedience. There's obedience again. Sin is disobedience to God. 
And those, he says, those sons of disobedience, they live in the passions of their flesh and carry out the desires of the body and the mind. Brother, sister, when you are tempted to carry out the desires of the flesh, the desires of the body and the mind, tell yourself, I am not a son of disobedience any longer. He describes those in this way are those who are children of wrath. Lord, I'm not a child of wrath any longer. Jesus doesn't make intercession for the world in this way, but for those whom the Father gave him, the elect. Again, we must be moved by the weight of this revelation that we are among those God has given Christ. We are chosen and saved and set free. This is good news because we too were once sons of disobedience. People who lived in the passions of our flesh, carried out the desires of the body and the mind, those who were children of wrath. But, verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness Toward us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen? That's who you are. In Christ. Finally, verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. This continues to show us that the interest of the Father and the Son could not be separated. What belonged to one belonged to the other, proof of Jesus' absolute deity. And what a place for us to be the subjects of this mutual affection of the Father and the Son. The world knew him not. Israel received him not. But these true disciples, by their faith, love, and obedience, glorified him. And because they are his and they believe into him, he makes intercession for them. He's praying for them. Matthew 10.32, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. How sweet it is that Jesus Christ makes intercession for you saved 
the redeemed before the Father. Beloved, he says, I'm glorified in them. His glory is made manifest in his work in us. And our lives live for him. So the little things you do in the name of Jesus for for the glory of Jesus, it, it glorifies him. The little things. Our church exists for the glory of God. We've seen that throughout Scripture. It's our mission statement. I'll teach on it in a few weeks at midweek. It's an important time for us to regroup as a church as we prepare for the launch in our new campus. Pray you would join us, the work that we're doing in midweek. The Disciples Church exists to glorify God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. His glory made manifest to make much of His name is our purpose, to point the world to the glory of God. How do we do this? John chapter 15, 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so to prove to be my disciples. Fruit honors God because it puts God on display. Why? Because you don't grow fruit. God grows fruit in you. As we abide in Jesus, cling to Jesus, believe in Jesus, trust Jesus, pray with Jesus, walk with Jesus, abide in Him in everything, trusting Him, yielding to Him, submitting to Him, Holy Spirit, the work of God, transforms us from the inside out to bear much fruit, which puts on display Holy God. That's why we don't boast in ourselves, we boast in God. No branch in the history of mankind has ever forgot how to bear fruit on his own. We're desperate for the vine, it's the work of God in our lives, that's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's the witness, the testimony, the transformation of our lives by the power of God is the evidence of God's work in and through us. That's why He gets the glory for it. He gets the glory for our lives. We point to Him. We don't say, yay me. We don't say, look at what I've done. We say, yay God. Look at what God is doing. Galatians 6.14, Far be it for me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Celebrating that he's been crucified to the world, that he's died to his old flesh and been born again in Christ. 1 Corinthians one thirty one, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God is glorified, he's exalted in and through our lives as he works in and through us to bring transformation and bear fruit as we prove to be his disciples. Jesus is about to depart, so he's praying for his faithful disciples and their testimony that it does what its ultimate aim is intended to do, and that is to glorify God. 
whether it's our victory in Christ or our greatest struggles or sufferings, it is for the glory of God. It is for the making much of his name above every other name. Remember what Jesus told Mary when Lazarus was sick. John 11, verse 4. Jesus heard it. He said, this illness does not lead to death. Speaking of eternal death. For it is the glory of God. It is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Yeah, we are at war with sin and death, with sickness, with these things. But we, through the testimony of Scripture and our faith in God, believe and understand that God uses everything, including our sickness and struggles, for His glory, for His purposes, for our opportunity to testify the gospel. So if you're ordained to be sick, to go through struggles and suffering, celebrate the temporary wins. Thank the doctors and medical insurance and friends who showed up and all of that. But boast in God. That God would be glorified. That people couldn't help but see in and through that, that it's for Him. To hear what He has done in our lives and that that is the sweetest gift we've been given. It's all about the glory of God. To see if you can pick up on a, on a little theme here. And just get in the car with me for a minute. Let's just go on a ride. Let's go on a journey through Scripture. Just a few. I couldn't do them all. We'd be here for weeks. Here's 10. Ezekiel, I listed them so you don't have to write them down. Ezekiel 25 through 9 says that God did not destroy Israel in the desert for the sake of his name. Exodus 14, 4 and 18 said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart for the glory of God. 1 Samuel 12, 19-23 says the beginning of the Israelites' monarch was about the glory of God. Psalm 23.3 says that he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. 1 Kings 8.41 and 45, Solomon dedicates the temple for the glory of God. 2 Samuel 7.23, Israel became great and powerful among the nations for the glory of God. John 17.4, our text today, Jesus' life and ministry is about the glory of God. John 12, 27 through 28 says the cross of Jesus is about the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says the Christian life is about the reflection of the glory of God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10 says the second coming is about the consummation of the glory of God. Revelation 21, 23 at the very end, the consummation of all things is that God may be praised. Amen? Church, praise God. He chose a people and we are among that people, and he's given us a faith by his grace, and we have the power of Christ alone to know God, to be reconciled to him, and to obey his word. 
And Jesus faithfully intercedes for us in prayer before the Father, and he's glorified in and through the lives that we live for him and by him. May we never grow tired of the name and the fame of Jesus. May we lift high and share it wide, for these days are his, and we are his, and it is all for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for the work that you've done and are doing in the lives of our people and our church. Lord, I pray for the obstacles that we're facing, the brothers and sisters and guests in the room that are, are struggling with, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would work, would, would bring clarity, would, would, would soften hearts, would bring conviction of repentance for sin. And if we've been struggling lately, you kind of make it all about us. That we, we remember that who we are in you and we joyfully submit to your words and your commands and it would not be burdensome. That we'd boast in you. And that today as I began in prayer that we just recognize that it's for, for your glory and how sweet it is to be part of your chosen people. Be honored by your people today and this week. Glory to God in the highest no other name but Jesus. We sing. We testify. For we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.